Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Sydney. And this week's episode, Out of This World Diving, is to to dive dive for. It's going. It is um, officially Thanksgiving in Australia, except they don't celebrate it here. So we'll be celebrating it tomorrow with some friends, but I'm going to be cooking a bunch of traditional dishes uh, probably all day today. And then, yeah, celebrating tomorrow. Dang. How about you? I am, I had like a, I don't know, honorary Thanksgiving team dinner last night. Um, Our, like, upper management of our team was here, and so they took us all out to dinner at the Hungry Iguana, Mm. and we had Thanksgiving curry. Yummy! (laughs) Um, But we might, tomorrow, look at doing some Thanksgiving, like, sides and things at... We don't have a lot of resources here. So, like, <laughs> sweet potato casserole, not happening. Green bean casserole, not happening. Um, we might get some mashed potatoes. I think we may have sliced deli turkey, so we could do, like, a little fried turkey thing. Uh, maybe some bread or macaroni. It's it's going to be really starchy. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> that's about all we got. <laughs> so, not really sure. Um but yeah, we'll. We, I think we're gonna try to cook some things together and then eat. Them. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have pumpkin puree in Australia, at least where I am. Like it's just not a thing. Oh. So that's a a fun little thing that we we can't do for Thanksgiving. So no pumpkin pies. Um. But I am having over a bunch of my friends from school. And everyone's from different countries, so they have never celebrated Thanksgiving, have no clue what Aww. it is. But we're going to make it a, a Friendsgiving potluck and try dishes from everyone's home country. That's um, really cool. Yeah, so something a little different, but it should be fun. And I'm excited to try that. new foods. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's so fun. That's so cool. Yeah. Ugh. International um, things are so fun. <laughs> I love I know. learning about other people's cultures and things. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so I have I have a few options for our ocean news today. Ooh, options. Would you like to hear about water droplet discoveries in the Himalayas, or? Would you like to hear about deep diving great whites? Huh. Deep diving great whites. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Too many options this week. Too much ocean news. <laughs> okay. So in this article, It's titled, Great White Sharks Recorded Diving Deep to Twilight Midnight Zones. 
So researchers have recorded great white sharks engaging in a perplexing deep sea behavior, and it's mystified scientists. So these great white sharks, as well as, I believe, whale sharks, swordfish, and tunas, have been shown to be making regular excursions to the mesopelagic zone, also known as the twilight zone. So this is between 200 and 1,000 meters below the ocean surface. Whoa. But then they've also been going down to the midnight zone, which is 1,000 to 3,000 meters under. So... Great white sharks have been diving as deep as 1,128 meters, and oh whale God. sharks up to 2,000 meters. And Holy smoke! Yeah, these visits <sighs> are far deeper than the depths at which these species normally feed, so it's kind of mystified scientists. Um, so they go on to say that while they don't know why they're going down there yet, um, it does show that the deep ocean is a really important habitat regardless of predator species that's utilizing it. So I think it it's really relevant now because I know, I believe we did an ocean news piece on it a couple weeks ago. Um, there's lots of talk about deep sea mining and mm -hmm. um, how that's going to affect organisms that live in the deep sea but now we can kind of see that it would also impact all of these really charismatic megafauna species that lots of people care about um and they're yeah. utilizing the deep sea there's probably so many other species that we don't know of that are also utilizing yeah. this area so i think it really just makes you realize like the impact this deep sea mining could have on the ocean as a whole yeah, yeah, I think a lot of times we just kind of regard the deep sea as having like just benthic organisms um and not having any like swimming in in whatever uh different kind of organisms or you know just having some of them but very few like oh yeah there's like one shark that lives super deep or like or angler fish or whatever like I think yeah. we just kind of think of the deep sea as like its whole own separate thing um but it is crazy to me that some animals can can exist in both the shallows and the deeps and, and these animals that we care about and have these connections to because we see them, get to swim with them and things like that can also inhabit these areas. So yeah, that's super fascinating. That's a, that's a really, that's a good one. But speaking of yeah. extreme environments, Ooh. we have, we have a diver today who is literally out of this world. Super cool. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she she lives in she works in extreme environments and yeah i have no no other way to transition that except super cool works in extreme environments Yay. <laughs> Ooh. we're like this is the most extreme environment we can get <laughs> special guest if you'd like you could go ahead and introduce yourself hi uh my name is lauren maples i work at uh, nasa johnson space center I am a EVA flight controller, which means that it's a very long word, extravehicular activity, uh, just really long word for spacewalk. Um, so essentially my role is to uh, help prepare, help train astronauts for spacewalks. And then uh, once we train them on the ground, then we'll uh, launch the mission up to space and uh, you know watch them uh, conduct their spacewalk and, and make sure that we're ready 
if any uh, crazy things come up and uh, we, we might need to get some words to help them out. Um, currently live uh, from Pearland, Texas, currently live in Galveston. Um, a lovely, small little island here, nice community. Um, just enjoy uh, island living. It's not the, the prettiest of island, uh, but it is an island uh, life for sure. Um, so I really enjoy living here and, um, you know, just enjoy scuba diving when I can, uh, kind of getting into dive travel here and there. And um, my previous role allowed me to dive a little bit more than it does now, which I'll, we'll talk about a little bit later, I'm sure. But um, yeah, that's just where I'm at. That's so cool. Super cool. Um, okay, so what would you say originally drew you to the water? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, well, I'm a Cancer, so uh, naturally a water baby. Me too. Um, <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah, my birthday is July 4th, and um, which is kind of cool, red, white, and blue for the rest of my life, which is super cool. Um, but so with that, you know, when I grew up in Pearland, there was this um, neighborhood pool. It was called Johnson's Pool. Um, and they had a high dive when I was a kid, and I swear it was like, three stories tall, you know, but it, likely I was just shorter then. So it was normal height. Um, but, you know, I was probably five or six and, and uh, my mom, you know, I told my mom, hey, I want to jump in, want to jump off the high dive. And she's like, okay. And I've got my little water wings on. She sends my uncle out there to like the center and just kind of treading water to make sure that, you know, I don't go under or drown. And of course I jump off and my floaties, you know, pop off and as soon as I make impact with the water and I start sinking down to the bottom and um, my mom, my uncle turned to look at my mom and she was like, well, go get her. And uh, so he goes down, dives down to, to go get me. And as soon as we surface, I was said something, something to the effect of, you know, uh, I want to do it again or I want to go again or something like that. And I think at that point, my mom knew I was destined to be in the water, around the water uh, my, the rest of my life. Um, and so that kind of drew me to, I've always been in love with the water, but to be honest, what drew me to the ocean was probably uh, the the film Free Willy and uh, my visit to SeaWorld when I was a kid. I, from then on, I swore I was going to be a marine biologist and, and be a whale trainer at SeaWorld. That was my dream when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, and then and then in the you know later later in life, I found myself in a role that allowed me to get scuba certified and. Um, just fell in love with it ever since. That's amazing. That's so fun. I feel like a lot of people yeah. got, like, maybe not their start, but, like, started dreaming about being, like, a whale trainer at SeaWorld. I feel like I've heard that one a lot. Like, when I was young, I just wanted to go work with the dolphins yeah. and whatever. So <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and I think there was something, there was something about the 90s that um, – I don't know what kind of marketing marine biology did or um, underwater welding as we all knew it then um, because everybody wanted to be a marine biologist or an underwater welder yep. like, and or, you know, like you wanted to do those things. And so I don't I don't know if it's just the 90s or if I'm, you know, if other generations had that same feeling, but I think they really marketed it to uh, to our generation about <laughs> wanting to be in the ocean with them. Especially probably with Little Mermaid, I'm sure that's Oh, started. yep. That definitely that definitely started mine. <laughs> then, yeah. And Finding nice. Nemo. Yeah. The number yeah, of hours of me singing Little Mermaid music that my parents had to listen to. <laughs> Far too many. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, man. That's awesome. So you say that you work at NASA, and I'm sure people are a little confused about why we have someone from NASA on our Dive Careers podcast. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about like what your current job or career is, maybe like the story of how you got there, and then we'll get into kind of what your day-to-day life looks like? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the story... It's a bit long. I'm going to try to condense it a little bit. Um, it spans about 13 years, maybe just under, maybe just under 13 to 14 years. Um, so I, I graduated from high school in ooh, 2008, um, found myself, you know, in the, at junior college and, and doing that, the junior college thing in, in 2009 and, um, was a starving college student at that time. So uh, I actually got a job at uh, Space Center Houston, which is the nonprofit educator center of NASA Johnson Space Center. And while I was there, I was, uh, my role was informal educator. And so I basically taught space camp to, um, to, you know, all age uh, kids. And the main one that I, that I taught was called space. Back then it was called space school. I think now it's Space Center University or something. Um, and in that, I would teach uh, basically these kids from all around the world would come through, uh, sp- come to Houston, and they would learn about. They would just take a take a engineering camp and learn about various um, various subjects of aerospace engineering. So whether it was how to build uh, model rockets, or and learning about how rockets work, or um, building robotic rovers. So that was kind of around that time when the Mars rovers were. Uh, well, they're still there, but when they were kind of first landing there and, and about to launch a new one. Um, so, you know, we went, take them all around NASA, show them different astronaut training facilities, and which included uh, the MBL and uh, Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory, which is a massive pool. Um, it's in the Houston area. It's a massive pool that has a um, full-scale mock-up of the International Space Station. And so essentially... What that facility is designed to do is to train um, astronauts, to allow them to train in a sort of a weightlessness environment. Um, So similar to diving, when you get yourself neutral, they call it the neutral buoyancy lab. So the divers, uh, they're they're divers that work there and um, their role is to situate, um, they're in their spacesuits, the spacesuit is pressurized um, and they situate weights at various ballast points to get them at a neutral uh, way out so that they're, you know, uh, neutral in three different axes, just like to get them to feel like they're moving in space. Um, and so then they, they call, they then translate or they, what they call translate is moving around space station, um, to go and fix things. So the space station is an orbiting laboratory. Uh, it moves at 17,500 miles per hour, uh, around earth, uh, every day for the past almost 25 years. I think 20, it turned 25 years, uh, this oh. year, I think. Um, so with that, you know, the kid, the students would learn about this space station training facility where, where they work uh, with astronauts. Um, and in that, you know, they, I would t- give them a tour of this facility and then we would take them to a smaller pool, um, not, not a NASA pool and uh, take them to go and learn basic scuba skills. So it was a tri-scuba event. So they would learn basic scuba skills um, and then they would you know, build little projects underwater uh, to simulate astronaut training. And you know, it also gives them the, the feeling of 
you know, they get neutral in the water and then so they can work in their little engineering teams, uh, but then also kind of give them that, that um, opportunity to work together without, without communication, uh, which is a huge thing um, in, in, in the NASA community. It's not that we have no communication, but there are multiple nations that we could potentially work with. And so people who are on your engineering teams may not speak the same language or you might have a language barrier. And um, so NASA has its own language uh, in form of acronyms that, that you learn all, all those different acronyms. Um, there's a whole class on it. And then that way you can kind of speak in this, their own language. Um, so I would give tours of this facility then take them to the small pool where they would learn this skill. And, and at that time I was only uh, just observing from the pool deck and just you know making sure that the students maintain safety while in the, the pool facility. Um, and then there was one time where I, you know, the, the event was over and I, at that point, knew nothing about scuba, but I saw that the divers that were there supporting, um, they kind of had, they were down, you know, they were taken, I think somebody had to leave a little bit earlier or something like that. And, and so I just said, hey, do you guys need help cleaning up? I'm done for the day. And, um, and they're like, yeah, sure, if you want to. And I think they assumed that I knew what I was doing. And I think that that they assumed that I would probably ask if I didn't know what I was doing, which I probably should have asked. Um, <laughs> after a blown O-ring, uh, I figured out how to disassemble scuba gear properly, uh, make sure I bleed the line and all of that. Uh, so that was a little embarrassing. Um, but but uh, in that time, uh, the, the business owner had, had you know come over and, and he asked if I had any interest in scuba. And I said... Um, you know, I, I do actually, I just can't afford it. And he was like, don't worry about that. If you love it, you know, you'll find the way, you'll find a way to make it, for, to make it work. And I was like, okay, fine. So I, you know, I got scuba, scuba certified. And, um, you know, from there I, you know, began still teaching the aerospace engineering camp, still visiting the NBL, um, still kind of teaching kids about astronaut training. And then one day, you know, I was like, man, I really want to, I think I want to, now I got my dive count up. Um, you know, I, at the time I was struggling with, with my, uh, weight, I've always struggled with weight and they had, you know, limits that you have to physical fitness requirements. And so I got, um, physically fit. I got my dive count up. I got to where I could meet all the qualifications that I felt comfortable applying. Even, even if I didn't get it, at least I knew I, I met the qualifications, you know, the minimum qualifications. So uh, I applied and got in, I was, then became a, a neutral buoyancy a laboratory diver, and I uh, was on the dive team there, which is incredible. So, so now uh, instead of looking at the down at the catwalk and you know peering over the pool, I'm now in it, and I'm you know diving with astronauts and um, you know assisting them in their training. So a lot of it is safety underwater. You know they're in their spacesuit. Uh, it's it's umbilical, so it's actually surface supplied. Um, divers are on on scuba, but the suits are surface supplied. Um, and so anything that you experience as a diver, whether it's AGE or any kind of decompression sickness or anything of that matter, uh, O2 toxicity, because we were breathing uh, nitrox at a significantly uh, higher percentage. Um, our, the max depth there is 40 feet. So we were at 46% um, nitrox, which at that point, they were, they, the tests take about six hours and the divers will stay in for about two hour rotations. So we we didn't really even need surface intervals. It was more like get out so you can warm up and grab a bite to eat, check your emails, and 
Um, but yeah, so that so I became an NBL diver, and uh, that was I worked there worked there for seven years, and it was an incredible seven years. Um, met a lot of people, got to do a lot of different outreaches, and, and kind of teach about hey, is there scuba diving at NASA? Who would have known? Um, and in that, I got you know working there for seven years. There's cool opportunities we get to do uh, as a part of the dive team, and one of them is going into uh, mission control support rooms, so not like the main mission control on TV, but the back rooms and in the same building, sort of mission control adjacent, if you will. Um, and in that, you there's like a whole team of, of EVA flight controllers in there, and they're all watching the spacewalk on the screens, listening to the communications, um, listening to the crew talk out, you know, walk through their procedures um, in space real time. And uh, so we get an opportunity as a dive team to kind of go and make those um, those connections. So so what happens in the pool and then how it looks in the pool and a lot of it's make believe, but you know it's real but also make believe. And so um, you know getting to see bridge that gap and see a real spacewalk happen it's incredible. So um, on this particular time that I went, uh, it was Kate Rubin's uh, first EVA. This was in 2016. It was Kate Rubin's first CVA. She, she went up there and um, she egresses or comes out of the airlock and uh, she says, hey, where are my divers? <laughs> Joking, of course. And, um, you know, everybody's laughing. I'm laugh I'm smiling. My face is red. I can't believe that our dive team just got like announced to the ether of space. It was incredible. And then I, and then I could hear it, too, you know, um, and I was there for it. So. That was just super cool. And not only, so that happened, I, I got hired in 2015. That happened about a year later. Um, and so I had just started, you know, sort of becoming a safety diver. And that's where you, like I said, you're responsible for anything that could go wrong. You're the first responder to the astronaut, like America's national treasures right there. And you are there, their lives are in your hands. Um, and so when she says this, when Kate Rubin says, hey, where are my divers? I realized that at that point, my role, our dive team's role, we were done. We did our job. And uh, there was nothing more that we could do to make sure her and, and her partner, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Williams at the time, um, that her uh, crewmate were safe and that they could you know, successfully uh, complete their spacewalk and come back in safely. And I realized it was on them too. And it was on their, fl their flight control team to get them uh, back inside safely. And, and at that moment, I was like, maybe I could do a little bit something more in EVA. And um, so when I kind of made that my new dream, instead of a, you know, it was a marine biologist, it was a diver at the NBL. And well, Nick's the, the marine biologist. I married one, which is good enough for me. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, you know, became an MBL diver and now it was, it was an EVA flight controller and that's what I wanted to do. So, um, I hadn't yet finished my bachelor's, my undergrad yet. So I got to work, found a program, uh, that, that I found interesting enough that I would actually finish. Um, so I have, uh, uh got my bachelor, finished my bachelor's in space studies with a concentration, concentration in aerospace science. Um, and then the world was shut down. I graduated in 2020, the world was still shut down. So, um, I decided, you know, to heck, what's what's two more years? So I enrolled in a master's program, uh, got my master's in systems engineering, um, graduated from Embry-Riddle uh, in 2022, and then uh, found myself um, 
as an EVA flight controller in January of 2023. So um, long story, but it's 14 years span of, um, you know, finding, not really quite knowing what I wanted to do and finding what I wanted to do through hobbies and passions that turned out to be a career at NASA, which I would have, I think even if you asked my mom, she would have never envisioned or, or dreamed that this could happen. And I, honestly, I don't think that I would have thought that I'd be here either, you know, by, and, and it all started by me saying yes to something that, you know, hey, do you need help? And blew some O-rings and then <laughs> here I am, you know? Um, so it's just incredible to have sort of that connection of the water and, and space. And, and the reality is, you know, a lot of astronauts that, that I've become close with and, um, you know, they, they enjoy scuba diving or, or they are biologists or marine biologists or oceanographers. And so I think the water kind of connect just exploration in general, um, whether it's down or up, they're going to explore it. So that's, that's pretty neat to be in this environment. Man, that is so incredible. I like every time I came up with a question, you'd answer it too. Like, I'd be like, Oh, I wonder like (laughs) saturation diving is this deep or is it shallow? Is it? And like, you just, you touched on everything, man. That was such a thorough answer. I loved it. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. It was long. I tried to shorten it a little bit. That's great. That's so cool. No, this is perfect. And I feel like in all of our past interviews, everyone always says they're drawn to the water or keep coming back because of the exploration or finding something new. And I feel like this topic, like your field perfectly translates that to real life. Like, I don't know, we're going from underwater to actually going in space now. Like our last episode with Charles, um, he ended it with saying that he goes back to the water because it feels like he's in space exploring a alien world every single time. And his scuba unit is his uh, his life support, his space suit. And I was like, okay, this our next episode. I just got chills. Yeah. Uh, that is so cool. <laughs> this is the perfect episode. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. And, and the cool thing about, you know, my role now, which I kind of left out a little bit, but... Um, you know, I still get to interface with the MBL. Part of part of my role is is now I'm I'm taking those procedures and and instead of being a diver in the water, I'm you know up on it's not there's a room yeah. like an observation or a control room above the pool um, where now I'm you know speaking in the microphone and giving um, the astronauts you know the direction and the procedures that they need. So I was just there yesterday and um, you know I, I get to still interface with my my old team. Um, I think we're all, NASA is just one big team, but, uh, you know, if you've been a part of a dive team or work as a dive master or or instructor in any type of environment, you know, those, those people become your family. And um, so it's really great that, you know, we've had others move on and go and do awesome things, but it's still cool to come back. And um, I do definitely, after seven years, does still feel like, it feels like my home. And every time I get to go back, it feels like home again So to, to be a part of. Also, you've unlocked a new pipe dream for me. It will likely never happen, but now I want to wear a spacesuit underwater. So not that that's ever going to happen, but I didn't even know it was a possibility. That (laughs) is super cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's that suit is probably the most expensive suit I'll ever wear. Um, And, you know, as a part of the dive team, you get an opportunity to get in the suit. It's sort of like a 
you know, it takes about a year from, from hire date to your certified safety diver. It takes, you know, it's a lot you have to go through and, um, you know, we train things. So we'll have situations where we'll have, you know, diver, you know, divers in a suit fake like they're mm. incapacitated or, or, you know, they had a seizure or they had, you know, some kind of thing. And then that way, the di- we, we're training the diver's response, so, you know, how quick it is. Um, did they do the right steps? So all to make sure that, um, you know, we Miss don't. something real. We respond yeah. accordingly. Yeah, we respond accordingly if, if something were to really happen. Um, and so I, like, I joke, you know, I think they put a diver in the suit. One, we're cheaper. So it's, it's a little bit easier to, to have us take that time in there. But it also gives us an opportunity to be able to understand how incredibly difficult um, that suit is to operate. And those who do operate it are really, they have the, the NASA term, the right stuff. Um, it's, it's not easy. It's, um, you know, I, I've been, I had the opportunity to get in uh, five times as a diver. And then when I, w- within the first year of my employment as a flight controller, I got in. So it's six times total. Uh, I'll take the beating every time um, because it's just so it teaches you learn so much. You learn how, um, you know, how to operate in it. And because of that, you learn how to teach people how to operate in it, um, which was great that, you know, from the diver standpoint, you know, there might be some crew that has the same build and stature as me. You know, I'm five two. I'm, I barely fit the suit. I think that's like. I don't even know the, the minimum height requirement, but I feel like I, I'm there. <laughs> and so if you, there's a picture, you know, of me where there's a big old bubble of the helmet and I'm like barely like inside of the helmet. I think I could like kind of squinch down and like to where my eyes, you can only see like this part of my head. Um, but, you know, it is incredibly helpful to be able to, to kind of like offer up tips to people that are, might, might be of your stature um, both from the diver perspective and for, you know, for, from the flight controller and instructor perspective, um, to be able to give that, that input to them, um, to kind of help them get through if, you know, whether they're having struggles or, Hey, I did it this way and we're kind of the same height. Maybe that, that would help, you know, help you. So that's pretty neat. Yeah. We, we talk about that a lot with things like our rescue courses, like how, being taught or having other people in your class that are of the same stature, it, it really helps make it all click. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, you know, I think it's just putting yourself in, in the shoes, in, in the fins or in the boots uh, of, of somebody else and being able to, um, you know, try it out and then figure out what works yeah. and what doesn't work. Yeah, yeah definitely. I think, I think that, like, adaptability aspect is really important too. Like, there isn't, a single one way to necessarily do everything, but like you can still accomplish really hard tasks in a creative and different way that works better for you. You don't just have to like brute force your way through everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's more of a, sometimes it, it's more of a finesse instead of, uh, instead of, you know, just brute force, as you said, even in the, even in the dive team world. So so I kind of talked a little bit about the, the safety divers. There's what is called utility diver or reconfiguration diver. And they're responsible for reconfiguring um, the space station in the pool per whatever the test conductor, which is now my role, um, for, for whatever they are, the test requirements are for that day. 
And, um, you know, some of that stuff is really heavy. We were, you know, you use lift bags to move around stuff. Um, but then sometimes you have to put it in an angle where even the lift bag's not really helping you. And so you find yourself really just muscling it. And, you know, for, for some of, to some people that's muscling, you only, you can only have so much muscle. And, and, um, or if you don't have that muscle, you got to think of it a little bit, you know, how to do it a little bit more strategically. And, um, that was one of the things that, that I really had to do, um, in, in the utility diver position that, you know, when I first started in the teams, uh, there weren't, I think I was one of maybe one of five, one of six, uh, females on the dive team, then out of a team of like, I don't know, 50 or something like that. Um, and so when it, you know, when we would learn how to do things, you know, the guys, which is great, they can do that. And some women too, they can just do that too. But if you just, if you can't, you can't, and you've got to figure out how to make it work. And, um, you know, since, since then, I think the roster, uh, at the NBL is, is the, the female dive team at least has grown significantly, which makes me really proud, um, to see that is like at least 16 so or so women on the dive team, which is incredible. Um, just women in diving in general, uh, just to be here with you, two women on, you know, on a diving podcast is just incredible and women in diving. Um, but in that world, which is, you know, most of the divers come for like Navy or commercial and stuff like that. So to see them in that realm, you know, operating and in, in what we do is just super incredible. I was looking up some news articles on you before we hopped on and I saw um, (laughs) there was one and it was a really cool picture of the pool in the sandpit area with the lighting mimicking the dark side of the moon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, That was a fun, um, that was a fun test. So I wasn't really involved in the, in in that testing. I wasn't really involved in what, what they were testing. It was more so as just setting up the light and taking pictures um, but yeah, and they had like this little walking path that we kind of had to lay out and stuff like that. But yeah, that was super cool to be a part of, of just, I say ground floor. It was really the ground floor, um, uh, in both ways, but to kind of see what that lighting and testing would look like. Um, yeah. Fun, fun to be a part wow. of. I feel like in scientific diving, we try and like mimic scenarios we would be in, but this just takes it to a whole nother level and it's amazing. Did you pull yeah, up the picture, yeah, I'm, Haley? I'm mind blown right now. <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> wow. Okay, so new new weird question. <laughs> if you can't answer any of these questions, that's okay too. But um, have you ever okay. like had someone come back from space and be like, like either, wow, that training was super accurate, super close to what I experienced, like really helpful, or like, do they ever come back and say, like, that was really helpful, but, like, we should do this thing differently so that it's closer to what it actually feels like or anything like that? Like, is it is it how, how good is your training? Yeah. So, yeah. So there's a lot, you know, what's really neat is crew will come back from, you know, their increment, which is you know however long they stay. Typically, it's six months unless they're doing like the year mission like we've seen in the past um, couple of couple of um, trips. But there's usually like a debrief that um, either we can have, they'll have with the public or they'll have with specific groups. Um, you know, there's been a lot of crew members that have come and like, you know, requested to specifically talk with the dive team and talk about, you know, the, the great things that 
um, you know, that we're doing and, and keep it up. And they felt comfortable because they had done it so many times um, in the pool that it feels like they were in the pool, although there's just no, there's no help. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of the fun part to be able to realize that, you know, a lot of them come back and say, man, it would have been really great if, if we had some diver help out there, you know, because it, it's physically taxing. And I think, um, you know, I, while I've never been to space, uh, I think that it, it would be sort of daunting to realize that it's just you, the two of you out there um, and the people in your ears and there's nobody there's in, in the real in the, in the MBL, there's um, more or less eight divers in the water. There could be a little bit more, but eight divers that are, you know, on that test for that day uh, in the water and to know that there's eight divers swimming about in a workspace that could be like no bigger than your desk um, is, is incredible. And, and they definitely have a, an ability to, I think, filter us out while they're working. But then I think, you know, once they're out there to me, at least if I were out there, I would feel super excited, but also a bit scared that it was just us two yeah. out here. Um, so yeah, they'll come back and, and they, you know, they, they appreciate or, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the challenges that, that go on with the water is that, you know, there's water drag. And so in the water, you're a bit more stable. Um, and in space, there's not, there's not really a lot of molecules, you know, in space being able to hold you. So, you know, if you push off of something, you're going to, you know, hightail it back in that direction. And, um, whereas in the pool, you, you can do that for a little bit until you, you know, the, the friction of the water, you start to kind of slow down a little bit. So that's kind of one of the things that they talk about. And it's harder to move uh, in the pool versus up in space. And, and it's also, you know, easier to stop in the pool, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, in space, they kind of have to grip real tight on something to be able to stop their momentum. Oh, man, so. that. Whew. Yeah. Man, <laughs> I can't imagine moving more slowly and like having more restricted movement than normal but like also pushing like have no molecule like exactly what you're talking about like i i can picture how helpful water molecules are when i'm in the water when i'm navigating like even in a drift <laughs> environment where you're moving yeah. pretty quick like you can you know tilt a fin one direction and allow the the stream of the water to push right. your body in different places and like to be able to take advantage of that medium around you, like I know we all say, you know, like water is like space and and in so many ways, of course it is. That's why there exists a neutral buoyancy lab, but I'd never really thought about <laughs> yeah. all the differences and all the, the ways that, you know, moving in the water is probably unique to moving in space and like, you know, a lack of molecule soup. That is so wild. Like, while people are out doing their spacewalks, planned or not, there's, like, a there's a whole team of people in their ear, right? Like, there's there's a whole lot of people who know what they're doing. Not, I mean, obviously, the astronaut knows what they're doing, too, right? Like, I'm not trying to apply. <laughs> there's, like, a whole team of people, you know, focusing on this one issue, like, whatever is happening. Like, we're doing this spacewalk, we're looking at this problem. There's a whole team of, of people supporting that, that goal together, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so they have in Mission Control. If you've seen a picture of Mission Control or seen it on TV, even the ones from like Apollo thirteen movie, while a little bit outdated or per the sixties, um, updated, but they look very similar to that. Um, and so with that, you know, there are tons of people. Everybody in that room is responsible for something, uh, whether it's um, 
whether it's EVA, like, like, you know, for our role, or whether they're looking at propulsion, or they're looking at thermal controls, um, all of those people have their own disciplines that fly the space station. Um, and then every one of those consoles has a back room in mission control that is filled with, that can be filled with 10 to 15, you know, it's a give or give or take, um, that is, that have, you know, dive a little bit deeper into that specialty of whatever it is that they are. Um, so for us in EVA, um, the crew there, you know, the, the, what's coming through their headset, you know, while they're on their spacewalk is actually one person. And that's what we would call, you know, cap, capcom or capsule communicator. Um, for spacewalks, we call them ground, ground IVs, um, which essentially is all they're doing is just talking, uh, talking the crew through those procedures. Um, and so what actually happens is they get one voice uh, that is going to them, and that's that Capcom, which is typically an astronaut that um, either has flown to space or, or is training, you know, training for a mission, but it, it will, in most cases for EVAs, um, well, in all cases for EVAs, it will be a, um, an astronaut. And then in the back room, or also in front room mission control. So they sit there in the front and then there is also a flight director who's responsible for like everybody. And so if you've seen Apollo 13, um, Gene Kranz, the guy in like the white vest that's you know in charge of everything, that's the flight director. And then all the other flight controllers uh, answer to the flight director. So in that there's a uh, EVA officer, which is what our front room person is. We also have uh, the EVA backroom, which is kind of split in two. There's um, EVA task, and then there's EVA systems. So uh, I'm an EVA task, and EVA task is focused on exactly what it sounds like, the task. So the tasks that they're doing, out once they get out of the airlock, everything that they're doing, all the tools, all the procedure steps, um, anything that could possibly do, even contingencies with the tools, so if the tools or, or other hardware break down um, or aren't functioning, then we're responsible for um, knowing, you know, how to troubleshoot if, if crew doesn't know how to troubleshoot or, you know, give, um, you know, give words to be able to troubleshoot. And then there's ta uh, then there's systems, which systems is responsible. They don't really care what the tasks, what tasks they're actually doing. Systems is paying attention to all the systems, um, the entire spacesuit, and making sure that the readouts uh, that they're getting, the data that they're getting from the suit is um, it is current and is um, viable. If there's anything that is skew at any point, then their um, their role is to jump on and, and give words to uh, to to the front room EVA and then EVA to the flight director. It's a big game of telephone. So back room talks to front room EVA, EVA talks to the flight director, flight director talks to the Capcom. And well, flight director talks to everybody, but flight director will you know, kind of tell that Capcom, or, or like I said, for EVA, we call it ground IV. Um, and so they'll talk to them. And so it's just this big telephone. Game. Yeah. So you can see how communication is so important because it, ha and we all have, so everybody in the back room to the front room, they're listening to multiple loops. So you feel like a crazy person. You're listening to like at least 20 people in your head and you have to figure out what information is important to me? Um, you have to listen to it all, but you you need to focus. You have to listen, filter, be able to filter what is important information that I need to listen to. Um, and you can you can change the volumes on different ones, but um, 
you have to be able to key in on, hey, is this important to me? And if it's not, then okay, I don't really need to listen to it. It's fine to be background, but still listening in case they say EVA task. And you're like, yeah, what, yeah. what is happening? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So it's a big, like I said, big game of telephone. And, um, you know, one of the things that is new to me is that I've um, spent seven years uh, of my life underwater speaking the language of EVA um, with hand signals. And now I have to speak the language of EVA with my mouth <laughs> and actually use my words. And so there's times where, um, you know, I'll be, if I'm teaching a class, you know, I'll do the same hand signals that I would do if I'm in the water. Like if I'm talking about, you know, the space driver and I, you know, give this finger, which is, you know, looks like a gun. And, you know, I would just do the same thing as if I was underwater, but now I'm using my voice and um, some of the, some of the crew will laugh about it because they're like, oh, I remember that sign. And yeah, that's fun. That's so cool. I feel like it's kind of similar, like a very, very vague, not exactly the same situation example. But like whenever I'm operating a boat and I, I always have the radio scanning. So I have it scanning 16, obviously, which is the Coast Guard station. And then I also in West Palm Beach, for example, our dive chatter radio is on channel 78. So everybody, you know, if you're in a fishing community, mm-hmm. you listen to a certain radio station for fishing chatter, like fish boat chatter or whatever. So, you know, everyone kind of has their own different local channels. So I'm always scanning a couple of different channels on the radio. And, you know, if I'm operating and I've got divers getting ready to get in the water and then I hear the radio go off, I have people on the back deck that I'm watching that I'm making sure they're getting ready. I'm watching the GPS to make sure I'm getting to the right spot at the right time as they're going to be ready so I can drop them and then get out of there quickly. Um, and then I'm also now listening to whatever's coming in over the radio. Is this, you know, some some dive boat telling someone else something that totally doesn't pertain to me? Are they talking about the shipping channel? Is this you know, the Coast Guard who's coming on, who's telling us the, you know, wave report for the next hour, or is it, you know, a loose object that's mm-hmm. floating around that's going to come potentially interfere with my operations? Like, I have to kind of be able to filter out that information of like, ah, oh, no, this is just a, another, you know, same call that I've heard 40 times that's been repeated by the Coast Guard throughout the past several hours I've been on the water, or like, oh, no, this is new information. This is something that is pertinent to me. So, I kind of relate to having to focus yeah. on a whole bunch of different things and then filter something out of like, is this, is this a part of my job right this moment or not? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it has to be really quick. Like you have to be able to take that information and, and say, okay, do I need to know this? Uh, or do I need to know this now? Or do I yeah. need to know this later? Or do I not need to yeah. know this at all? And you know, the brain is like trying to, um, you know, figure that out very quickly. And, and that's, you know, in diving, it's the same. And in flight control world, it's the same. Um, you know, I, for safety, you know, as a safety diver in the MDL, you're looking at so many things. You're looking at, your you're making sure that the umbilical that's attached to the suit isn't wrapped up against something because that's their literal lifeline. You're making sure that, um, you know, whatever tools they have, so they sometimes have these bags that they'll put tools in and we try to put foam on it. Sometimes it's not as neutral as we would like. Actually, be pretty negative. And so a lot of my dives have been sort of like, you know, my knee on, on one thing and I'm holding this thing up. And I'm, you know, just trying to make believe like, you know, it's floating in space, but really it's a diver just doing this. Um, you know, and, and your mask gets pressed against something and your mask is flooding. And is some dives have been, you know, great. It was successful because it was a safe training mission. They met their training objectives, but 
you know, I always say behind every, um, you know, great NBL run, there was a diver that was likely drowning at one point. <laughs> not really drowning, but like, you know, just yeah, not yeah. in the best conditions uh, in terms of, yeah. you know, comfort. So, uh, but yeah, you're looking, you're scanning at different things. So you're looking at over the suit, making sure that there's no, um, no changes in the suit. Um, you know, sometimes tools fall off. And, and if so, you know, if tools fall off of the suit, that those tools are included in that weight mm. of the way out, right? So if if there was a tool that fell off that was like, you know, attached up here and now it's down at the legs or, or lower and it's not really fallen off, but it's just moved positions, then that that their way out will shift from like, instead of being like totally neutral in all axes, if that tool's up here at their chest and now it's down here, they're gonna be a little, what we call feet heavy. So they'll, you know, start, their feet will start dragging a bit and. Um, you know, so just paying attention to what moved and if it had to move, then how to compensate and move those weights, shift weights around so that they don't feel, you know, that drop in their feet. So just trying to, so you'll also see like there's what we call float divers and they're camera divers that have just a, literally hold on like this and they film all the footage going on. And that is what gets fed up to the mm. test conductor room. And that's where, what I watch for or, or I'm watching from. Um, and so, you know, there's times where they're, they'll be, you know, kind of in position, the divers are trying to get, uh, you know, trying to get the, the way out situated and then you, you can see them like kind of back out and you can see them the big, the bigger picture of what's going on. And you're like, oh, okay, the, the tool moved and y'all are adjusting the way out. But you also, it looks like you have like divers on the backs of astronauts, like just kind of like moving those weights around in different locations. Um, Trying to, get, trying to make it so that they don't feel yeah. any different. Um, and that, that can be because, you know, if they if they pick up a tool that is like five pounds and they extend it out to here, you know, they're going to start going like that. And so, uh, you know, how to counteract that. And um, it can kind of get a little uh, ADD trying to do all of these things at once. And, yeah. and I definitely think that that has helped me um, being able to scan and do multiple things. You know, that they say, you know, uh, multitasking is not a thing. You shouldn't actually be doing that because you're not actually paying attention. Um, but you, task switching is what they call it. But there are times in safety that you know as an instructor, as a DM, where uh, you have to do multiple things at a time to ensure the safety of your students, of um, other teammates, of astronauts in the water, of astronauts in space. And so uh, sometimes you just gotta. Sometimes you just gotta have a little ADD to to help you out. Yeah. Um, have there been any like crazy challenges that you've faced in this field? And can you tell us a story of like how you've overcome any of these challenges that you faced? Mm, crazy challenges. So I'm relatively new to this field, um, in terms of being in flight control world. So all of it's a little challenging in the sense that it's new, new material. Um, but I think one of the things that I had coming in to the MBL was, um, you know, years ago, I, I had a hard time asking, asking questions. Um, mm. I, I had sort of this, and nobody in the MBL or, or in the training organization or anything like that made me feel that way. I just didn't want to, this was like my first full-time gig. I'm working at NASA. I don't want to sound like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and, you know, I was a little bit shy at first to, to ask questions on things that I didn't understand. And then I would go and, um, 
I would go and sort of Google or research or I went to school to kind of learn more. Um, and I think that with that, if I would have just felt a little bit more comfortable um, in the beginning, asking questions and knowing that it's okay to ask questions um, and not feeling that, you know, I think a lot of it was, um, it, it was from me just kind of being new and green to the world, being younger and, uh, you know, in, the, in probably a bit of imposter syndrome um, then. And I think, and now that I'm in this role, uh, the imposter syndrome is still there, uh, a healthy dose of it. Um, cause it keeps you humble. I think that's, that's important, but you know, I, I don't know whether it's now I'm in my thirties and I just don't really care what, what people think yeah. of me anymore or, or, or if it's just that I've, I've learned that it's okay to ask questions and, and, and it helps, you know, and now I was in an environment that, that it didn't make me feel that way now, but you know, now I'm in an environment where everybody's like, do you have questions? Do you have questions? I'm like, yes, actually, how do I do this? And, you know, I just feel, um, much more at ease being able to, you know, to ask the things that I need to ask, just to be a little bit more inquisitive. Um, and so, yeah, that was a challenge for me. It was a challenge at first when I first got into this role, um, just cause I was, I was new, new. Um, and I had, and that was the thing is I had an understanding of, of EBA, but from the ground understanding and now I needed to learn the flight rules. And, and so now, you know, I, I'm totally open to, you know, just asking questions, even if they sound dumb. I'm like, well, at least, even if it wasn't dumb, at least now I know, or even if it was dumb, I'm like, oh, that, that was a dumb question. I should have asked it. Um, but yeah, now I just don't really have a care, I guess, <laughs> to ask those questions. So. That's awesome. I have actually always been that obnoxious kid who just does not care and asks <laughs> questions, which I appreciate about myself, but the, you know, one of the reasons I appreciate that about myself is that I have a lot of friends who are not that person and who have come to me yeah. and been like, man, I'm really glad you asked that question because I thought I was the only one that was lost. So, like, I really, I I do genuinely feel that, like, if I have a question, chances are someone around me also has that question. Um, and then on top of that, it's helped me be, like, as an instructor, as a, a dive instructor, I always try to create a space that people can feel free to ask questions. And I do that not only by asking like do you have questions but also by trying to strike this balance which is often tricky depending on the various people that you have in your classes um but trying to strike this balance between like take me seriously i do know what i'm talking about i am a scuba instructor and also like i do silly things too i make mistakes i'm not brilliant every second of every day and like it's okay if you sound silly too like i'm goofy you're goofy we'll just all be silly together and not take ourselves too seriously so like I feel like being the, the question asker has helped me to try and relay that into other other settings and things too. And I think that's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've been dealing with that. I'm also the person that never really wanted to ask questions. So luckily I had Haley for a little bit to ask the questions for me. But <laughs> now that I'm PhD student, I'm like preaching to the master's and undergrad students under me to ask questions and don't sit with a question for too long and then waste all this time trying to figure it out on your own and stressing yourself out. So now that I'm preaching that to other people, I'm like, okay, I have to get better about asking <laughs> questions. And it, it's actually worked, but yeah, definitely also dealing with that in academia. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we're off the serious questions. Now we're on to the silly questions, which is my personal favorite part of every episode. 
Um, so we'll right. we'll start with my favorite question, which is, what is your favorite dive boat snorkel water related story? Whether it was a work one or a recreational dive or whatever, what's your favorite story? Gosh, man, I there are so many stories. Um, I feel like every time I get in the water, it's my favorite one. But recently, uh, my wife and I with the uh, with Texas Scuba Adventures, the dive shop that, that I work with, I'm, I've been involved with a lot of the dive travel. Um, and recently, uh, we went to Bali um, over, uh, I think it's back in August. And we were, you know, her and I were on a dive. We had some, uh, a lot of, you know, we had, I think we had 10 or 15 um, divers with us. And uh, we're all on a dive and, you know, just kind of going through it. And all of a sudden, I turn around and I see... Only the tail fin of, of, and my wife saw it too. She actually saw it first, but of a, of a thresher shark that, um, yes, oh my that she has been dying to see. And like I said, you, we only were able to identify because the tail, you know, the tail, right? And so, um, you know, the way that she said through her reg so loudly, it was amazing. She was like, Thresher! And so like that just comes to mind because she just had so much joy. And and then, you know, I, I turned around immediately and caught caught it swimming away. And um the of the most recent fun stories, that was probably my favorite uh, as of as of late. So I don't know That's if I've ever heard an like another diver say that they saw Thresher underwater. That's amazing. My my partner would die yeah. if he saw that. <laughs> I think I would die if I saw yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was super cool. It cool. was it was incredible. Yeah. Cool. What is one weird, unique, fun fact about you? Unique fun fact about me. Um, oh, let's see. I have a. It's a sickness, really. I have an addiction to t-shirts. Um, I, it's embarrassing t-shirts and guitars. I'm just also noticing how many guitars we have in this house and, um, they all have their own different sounds and just like the t-shirts, they all have their own memories. I'm, I'm a sucker for, Uh for a dive shirt. And, uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, there are, I do a lot of interesting things and which is super cool, but I definitely think that the t-shirt thing is, it's a bit, um, it's a sickness, yeah. <laughs> I like it. I had too many from, like, sports and college and stuff, and I, I made them into a, a T-shirt quilt so that they weren't just a bunch of T-shirts yeah. in my drawer that I didn't and wear. And I'm thinking that's what I'm going to have to do with these dive shirts. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty soon, yeah. Cool. Um. All right, well. After all this time, after all these crazy cool experiences you've had, what would you say is the thing that keeps you coming back to the water? Well, that's a good one. Um, what come, What keeps me coming back? Um, you know, I think a lot of it is is you know the love, the love of the ocean, um, the peace that I get when I'm underwater. You know, at the NBL, you're constantly listening to people talk in the water. Um, and it's kind of nice to just hear the earth, the the ocean living um, when you're underwater, and just kind of hearing, you know, ecosystems and the crunching and the, you know, hearing all of that. It's lot. It's life. Hearing life. Um, that's not your own life. It, it, 
it's crazy to, so, you know, love of it, peace. Um, it really helps when, you know, when my wife has also loves diving just as much as I do. And to be able to share that with her, you know, there's a lot of times where maybe one spouse dives and the other one doesn't. And I think that, you know, because we have that in common, that love for the ocean, it kind of just has, we have just this really cool connection that I think that some people, I hope that everybody experiences, but, you know, I think it's something that's just special to divers. So, um, yeah, definitely just love, peace, and, and that sharing that time with my wife underwater is, is so valuable and will always keep me coming back for more. Oh, I that's love amazing. That. That's such a good answer. Aww. Well, thank you so much for taking time today to come on our podcast. We are so yeah. excited to get to talk. Yeah, to you. awesome. Thank you guys so much for, for reaching out. This has been awesome. And, and I'm excited to, to hear the final product and, um, you know, just kind of even just, you know, keep it in the future, just kind of keep the relationship rolling. I think it's cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that would be yeah. awesome. And uh, happy early Thanksgiving. Thank you. Same to you guys. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fishtails episodes. Those will come out about once a month and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titleteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at to dive for podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. You know, if you listen to the end of our episode every week, you get a fish fact. And this week's fish fact is inspired by a dive boat conversation we had this week. Uh, This week, I'm here to tell you that most fish only have two color rods, which means they can't see colors in the red, yellow, orange spectrum. Uh, This is likely because red is one of the first colors to filter out of the water column, and therefore it's not a super useful color when you live your whole life underwater. However, lots of fish can see polarized light and some even UV. So super cool visual abilities by aquatic organisms. See you next week.